Okay, well, um, I probably, like many of you, I've felt a little bit provoked by uh, all that's happening uh, as, I've, as we've been watching things unfold in our country, listening to people, uh, the way they talk, the things they talk about, reading what other people are saying uh, from both Christians and unbelievers. And I don't think that you could just find a, uh, a wider variety of opinions uh, than in any other time in history. I think it's just crazy. We have COVID-19, we have race issues, uh, riots, we have reparations demanded, uh, murder and suicide on the rise, hurricanes, wildfires, the death of a Supreme Court justice, the nomination of another one, the election before us, and now our, our president has COVID-19 and nobody knows exactly how he's doing. Uh, some are having a, a candlelight vigil for him while others are chanting death to the president because he's somehow uh, to blame for slavery, uh, global warming, the virus, and Trump derangement syndrome. Uh, it's just crazy right now. The way people are thinking, uh, the way that they're coming to their conclusions is uh, bizarre and wild. So confusion, indecision, disparity, and rage seem to be the best way to describe everything overall. And um, yeah, and as I would love to address all of those issues, my concern this morning really is uh, the election. And my goal this morning is to influence your vote uh, by way of the scriptures, okay? To influence by way of the scriptures. And um, yeah, and if you don't like what I say uh, today, uh, I think I'm a reasonable person. We could sit down and talk. Um, I am going to disagree with you, uh, but we can talk about it. And, uh, and I hope to persuade you otherwise. Okay. So um, let's talk about it. Uh, as I said earlier, I think that in, in, of all places, and, and from this position where I'm standing uh, with this particular document, uh, this is the place to talk about these things with the scriptures as our guide, and, and, and by the way, not our conscience. Uh, I, I'm always leery, uh, weary when I hear people say we should vote our conscience. Uh, I've read my Bible, the conscience is broken, okay? Uh, the scriptures cannot be broken, according to Jesus. And um, so oftentimes our conscience is not, it is not completely fixed when we come to Christ for salvation. It remains broken. And uh, so we want, our conscience is only as good as it's informed by the Bible. And uh, that's where we need to align ourselves with. And um, so this morning I'll be addressing that it's not who we vote for as Christians, but what we vote for. It's not about persons, it's about policy, okay? Also, I want to uh, slip in something in there about third-party voting. That should be interesting. And then we'll look at how our vote should be in accord with God's ordained purpose for government. How our vote should be in align with God's ordained purpose for government. And fourth, that we should vote according to what God values most. We should vote according to what God values most. And then I'm going to close with the matter of the heart, okay? Because we do not want to depend on our vote or our government really at all. All right, so let's begin by talking about voting for policy rather than persons, okay? Not who we vote for, uh, but what we vote for, what we vote for. Uh, I think that as Christians, we all feel, you know, this, this moral obligation to do something to promote and to preserve the good as well as hinder evil. 
if I had to raise your hand and say, who doesn't feel that? Um, anyway, let's just not even do a raise of hands on that one. Huh. But as far as hindering the evil and promoting the good, there's one place that the average citizen can go to affect those things, and it really is the ballot box. Now, if this was a discussion about prayer, that would be the mightiest thing, along with preaching the gospel, but we're in the context of this right now. Uh, these aren't in the absence of prayer. These aren't in the absence of preaching the gospel. Uh, but this is what I'm talking about now. And as our nation becomes more and more divided, and as our values become more divergent, some Christians have encountered this dilemma, I would say, even in their conscience in regard to what candidate to vote for. I want to take a raise of hands on that, but I'm not going to do that either. You know, we take a look at the candidates and their character and we feel at a complete loss because character is something, especially as believers, that we value and there just seems to be none of it at the top. None of it. We say to ourselves, I don't think I could vote for that person because of the things they say and because of the way they say it and the things that they've done. I couldn't possibly align myself with them by voting for them. But that's actually the perspective that I want to challenge this morning and hopefully give your conscience some relief, okay? I mean, because I understand the sentiment, but I don't think a candidate's character is our primary concern in an election, and I don't believe it's consistent with how God has used government for his purposes in the past. I mean, really, think about it. In, in the past, how many governments from, let's begin with Israel and Egypt until the present day, where governments have been a shining example of character. But has God used them for his own purposes? Did he raise them up and put them on their thrones? Most definitely. Read the book of Daniel. Okay? He raises them up and he throws them back down to the ground. Okay? He is sovereign. So having our attention on a person and their character, I really think it can distract us from the more important issues that God concerns himself with in the context of civil government. Because see, policy is way bigger and far more important than any person. Far more important, okay? So it's not about who they are. It's about the things they'll advance, okay? And most closely align itself, those things that most closely align itself with the nature of God and his will. And that really is where our true obligation is. I have an obligation, really, ultimately, to one person. And it's the king. It's not to anybody else. As God's ambassadors, we're called to advance what will bring him the most glory. And what glorifies God most is that which honors his values, which we'll talk about in a bit. But if the election is about a person, you're just going to be paralyzed by indecision. But if it's about policy, you'll be liberated in your conscience. Now, some people think they solve the problem by voting third party. You know, third party being the person they, they write into the blank but who has no chances of getting into office. And they reassure themselves by thinking they didn't help either of the other people who they really despise. They didn't help them get into office. That's not completely true. The third party vote isn't exactly passive, not when it comes to advancing or hindering at least some of what God either loves or hates. You see, if one of the, the real candidates will advance at least one of the things that God loves, or hinder at least one of the things that God hates, and you vote third party, you've actually taken your vote away from the real candidate and made it easier for the other person to get elected who is contrary to the things of God. You end up helping the wrong candidate by voting third party. 
That's what you do. The third-party vote is not thrown away because it actually, actually helps the wrong candidate who will promote bad policy. One of the most prominent Christian philosophers said the other day, the third-party voting is equivalent to having faith without works, he says, which is dead. Christian theologian Wayne Grudem says the third-party voting violates the principle found in Proverbs 3.27, which says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in the power of your hand to do so. Now understand, it's not withholding good from the candidate. It's withholding good from those who would benefit from their policies. That's what it does. So I want, to, I want to encourage you to ignore the person and focus on the policies and the things they're trying to advance through legislation and the advancement of good laws, the establishment of them. Our moral obligation is not to the person who will sit in the White House. It's not. Our moral obligation is to be used to, or by God rather, to assist the greater good and to hinder evil. So I have a question for you. What will have the greatest lasting impact on a society and culture, a president's personality or his policies? His policies, obviously. So I refuse to concern myself with one man's character when there are real issues to address, real issues to defend and push forward. I have to remember that the presidential election is not like appointing pastors and elders where character is absolutely essential. It's not the same thing. Our standard for church officers, it cannot be imposed on politics because God has not imposed it there, obviously. Okay? It would be great to have a president with godly character, but those aren't the options before us. They're not. And even if a candidate claimed to be a Christian and displayed godly character, I wouldn't want that to distract me. I would hope, I would do my best to keep my eye on policy anyway. Now understand, I'm not diminishing the value of character. I'm just saying it doesn't come before policy in this particular context, okay? You know, in the past, the evangelical community has concerned itself with a candidate's character and faith, but when the said candidate got into office, they proved themselves to be a moral coward. They did, and everyone suffered for it. I think that no matter what, we should always remember that we're dealing with politicians, and we really do not know them. We don't know them. Okay. So regardless of faith or character, I, I want a president who will push for what God values most, whether he does it intentionally or inadvertently, or even to just irritate the other party. I don't care. Okay. If he's going to use, I, I want God to use him as a means to an end, to his ends. Okay. So please take your focus off the man and give your attention to what they'll advance as far as what God values. Because in the end, it's not about who you vote for. It's about what you vote for. And so it really is the what that I want to explore with you this morning from the scriptures, what it is that God values most. Now, I say most because there are things of greater and lesser importance to God, okay? There are greater virtues than others, and there are greater sins than others, all right? Greater sins. For example, scripture teaches that there is a greatest commandment. Have you heard of that? There is a greatest commandment, according to Jesus. I think he knows what he's talking about. Matthew 22, 38. There are weightier things in the law, according to Jesus. Matthew 23, 23. And there is the greatest virtue of all, 1 Corinthians 13. Anybody know what the greatest virtue of all is? Love. Scripture also teaches that there is greater condemnation for some sins and for some sinners. Matthew 23, 14. Some sins are more tolerable than other sins. Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. 
Uh, no sins are justifiable, by the way. And some sins receive greater punishment than other sins. Luke 12, 48. God has, we would say, a hierarchy of ethics, or what is called graded absolutism okay, in philosophy. Not all sins are equal, and not all virtues are the same. So there are moral issues that are more important to God than other moral issues. What are those issues? Okay, now, I want you to be thinking about that, because I'm going to bring it up in a little bit, because right now I want to talk about God's purpose for civil government, and that's going to get woven into all of that. The purpose for civil government is most clearly taught to us in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. I read Romans 13, 1 through 7 to you last week. I don't want to repeat it today. Um, No, I have time today. You can turn there if you want. Romans 13, read verses 1 through 4. I want you to pay attention to what Paul says the divine purpose for government is. Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil." Okay, so scripture here, it's the exact same thing in uh, 1 Peter 2. God has ordained government basically for two things. Two things, to punish those who practice evil and to be a benefit to its citizens and commending them for good works. That's it. Kind of sounds like small government, doesn't it? It's pretty simple. Punish evil, exalt the good. And notice there's nothing in Romans 13, and you can read 1 Peter 2 later, there's nothing in either of them about the character of government authorities. It's not like turning to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 and looking at the requirements for a pastor or elder. It's all about character. Here it's all about using governments as God's means to his end. Okay? Now God's purpose for government is essential when we consider what it is we're to be voting for. It's essential. We want a government that will most closely align itself with God's purpose for government, right? I mean, because then if you vote for a government that has already promised not to fulfill that, aren't we voting against God's purpose for government? You can say it. Say amen. It's true. It's true. If one particular candidate is soft on evil, we don't want him in the White House. He does not care about the things that God cares about. We want a government that is concerned about injustice and evil and takes action against it. Because when evil is not dealt with for what it is, it eventually permeates all of society. Currently, one party is justifying or ignoring the riots. And ignoring is essentially the same as justifying, especially when you're in a position of power. But notice what is actually being justified. Anarchy, violence, theft, destruction of personal property, people's liberty, people's livelihood, and it's even cost some people their lives. These politicians are justifying things that God hates. They're justifying evil, so they're not fulfilling God's purpose for government. They're working opposite, contrary to it. And so we shouldn't want them in government. We shouldn't want them there. Now, some Christians are saying that the riots are justified because of the cause. 
It's a good cause, they say. And besides, riots and violence are the only way to get the government to listen. Okay, so we just replace God's ordained rule with mob rule. Forget what God's word says. You know, whenever a Christian is in favor of riots, he's saying that the reciprocation of evil is good. But Paul says, do not return evil for evil, Romans 12, 17, but instead overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. So God is not in heaven cheering the riots, and he's not cheering on those Christians who approve of them. So back to those at the top. Uh, You know, many of these politicians, as we've watched, they do not condemn this behavior until it comes to their doorstep, Yeah, which is basically saying, it's okay if it happens to you, but it's not okay when it happens to me. And that kind of hypocrisy is especially evil because these leaders have the ability to stop it for the benefit of its citizens. They refuse to. They're saying that they belong to a special class of people who should be protected, and when things go wrong, it should be taken out on the peasants. That's what that mentality is. And that is the opposite purpose for government. They're here to serve us according to God's ordination. We don't want people with that kind of mentality in the White House or any other level of government to promote, to promote evil rather than punishing it. Rather than upholding the good, they're crushing it. You know, many state leaders have taught a whole generation of young people that social justice is most vindicated by injustice and violence. I think we're going to reap the whirlwind with some of this stuff. It's crazy. It's important for us to know that when a government does these things, they're in violation of God's ordination. It's a violation. As his people, we should align ourselves with God's purpose for government and put our vote toward those who punish evil and reward the good. That's what we want. We want what God wants. If we don't, we're encouraging rebellion against God himself because as we just read in a civil context, to disobey the governing authorities is to disobey God. I don't want to encourage that. So remember, it's not about who we vote for, but what we vote for. It's about what. Now let's come back to our discussion about graded absolutism God's hierarchy of ethics. Some moral issues are more important to God than other moral issues. And it is for us to view morality in the same way he does and then prioritize them accordingly. We must. So what's at the top of God's hierarchy of ethics and morality? What is it that's so important to him? First and foremost, it is the, the issue of God's image in man. Nothing is more important than this. Nothing. Not in the scriptures. The only thing that gives man any real value is that we're created in God's image. It separates us from the animals. It's it. It is the one great reason that human life is precious and why it should be protected. Okay? In the cultural context of America, the one great issue before us is the issue of those who are the weakest among us, the most innocent among us, and the most defenseless. It's the issue of those who are still in the womb. That is the issue. And knowing God's position on those in the womb is essential. It's essential. And if you want to know what God thinks about the killing of the unborn, you just have to turn to Exodus 21, 22 through 25, which I'll read to you. And I want you to please listen careful. Okay? It's a scenario from the book of Exodus regarding a particular law that reflects God's position on this. Moses says, if men fight and hurt a woman who is pregnant so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according, accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Notice the scenario is of two men fighting and one of them accidentally injures or kills a pregnant woman or her child or children if she has twins or or more. This is not an intentional thing, but accidental. So please pay attention to this argument. From the law of God, if an adult man accidentally killed another adult man, the killer could flee to a city of refuge where he would be protected as long as he remained in the city. That's Numbers 35, 9 through 34. But if a man accidentally killed a pregnant woman or her child, he could not flee to a city of refuge. His crime was a capital offense for which he was to be executed. There was no protection for him. Therefore, it is a greater crime to accidentally kill a pregnant woman or her child than it is to accidentally kill an adult man. Listen, if God considers the accidental killing of an unborn baby to be worthy of death, what does he think about the intentional killing of an unborn baby? There's some perspective here that needs to be. America has intentionally killed over 64 million unborn babies, and it's legal because of Roe versus Wade. But what is legal in America is an abomination to God. Also notice that the text does not concern itself with how far along the pregnancy was, because to God, it's all the same. It's all the same. At the very moment of conception, the child is endowed with the image of God. They're one of us. They're just small, but they're one of us. The only real difference between an unborn baby and myself is location. The baby is in the womb, and I'm not in the womb. That's the only difference, okay? And location does not determine a person's value, right? The image of God does. His image does. And so during pregnancy, from conception to delivery, the mother's womb is a sanctuary for what is holy. It's a sanctuary. And from God's perspective, the unborn baby is worthy of more protection than an adult because nothing in this world represents the weak, the vulnerable, the innocent, and the defenseless like a baby in the womb. Nothing does. The life of that baby is sacred to God, and as Christians, those little people should be just as sacred to us. Just as sacred, okay? Because of the image of of God, the baby should be protected. And because the baby is defenseless, it is worthy of more protection, of more protection. Nothing is going to change God's perspective on this. Nothing. And no one's so-called rights exceed the sanctity of God's image in the womb. So I beg you, do not give your vote to someone who's in favor of killing babies. Such a vote would perpetuate what God hates Abortion is a crime that touches him personally, personally. Now, I know that when I mention this particular issue, it's a hot spot for many people in the West. And, you know, statistics show that there are many Christians that have had abortions. And as bad as the sin is, there is forgiveness for it, okay? Through repentance, confession. But it is something that we must remove ourselves from and we must do all that we can to protect those, those people. The scriptures make it clear that murder is wrong because we've been created in the image of God. Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And then it's pushed all the way to the end of scripture. Currently, one candidate is pro-abortion with no restrictions. And the other is the most pro-life candidate in history. It's the truth. From a biblical perspective, if they kill babies, they should not obtain the Christian's vote. And what is, I think, currently noteworthy, the potential arrangement of things in the Supreme Court 
it's possible to overturn Roe versus Wade. It's possible. And if that were to happen, the government could fulfill what God ordained it for. They could be a terror to evil and commend people for doing what is right. Yeah, which is currently upside down in the context of abortion. Good laws are those consistent with God's moral character. And the best laws are the ones that protect human life. Those are the best laws. Now, there are many, many other moral issues that we could address, like sexuality and marriage, family, procreation, work, justice and equality, personal liberty, religious freedom, personal responsibility. There's so many things. In fact, the most important issues of our day concern the things that God originally instituted in Genesis 1 and 2 when he said, it is very good. That's what's under attack in America. Everything that God said is very good in Genesis. Okay. Man is striving to emancipate himself not only from everything that is good, from the very source of, thing, of, of what is good. They want to be separate from God. And the further they get from God, the more corrupt society becomes. And that leads me into my last point. I think perhaps the, the greatest mistake made by evangelicals since the founding of our nation was to think that legis- legislating the right laws could somehow cure what ails us. It's a mistake. While good laws are necessary for a safe and civil society, good laws do not get people saved. They just promote moralism, okay? Moralism. In fact, unbelieving people who are moral in their day-to-day lives have a false sense of security because their moral conscience is not constantly tormenting them. They think to themselves, I'm a good person, so why do I need God? Some friends of ours who were formerly Amish were raised in potentially one of the most moral contexts of any culture in the world. And Alan went to a funeral where a Baptist preacher preached the gospel and he got saved. And then he went home with his salvation and his wife said, why do I need that? Don't you see how good I am? And it took the conviction of the Holy Spirit for two years for Barbara to recognize that she was wretched in the eyes of God. So there's danger to moralism when there's no preaching of the gospel. When there's no preaching of the gospel. Yeah, good laws are only so good. You know, the civil and moral laws that God established for Israel were perfect. Paul says that. It's perfect. God established a perfect moral code, a flawless civil philosophy. But if the individual citizen did not come to faith in God, trusting him for salvation, their morality was, as, it was only good for this life. It would never count for anything in heaven. Yeah, just as Paul said. He said, if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law, the law of Moses. Galatians 3, 21. But by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. For by the law, Paul says, is just the knowledge of sin. Okay. So if the perfect law of God could not save a single soul, then there's no way that our laws, our bill of rights, our constitution will ever help someone be saved. Our man-made governments will never amount to God's, and if God's law was powerless to save the Jew, what hope is there for ours? Our society, I don't think, needs, I don't think they need more laws. We just need good laws with a, a vertebrate government to uphold them. But even then, our society will need the gospel for every citizen if any citizen is to be saved. We have a moral obligation to vote and to advance good policy, but our obligation to do that pales in comparison to our obligation to share the truth of the gospel with our neighbor. We don't want to see a good moral society go to hell. That's the fact. Because good people go to hell every day and they never come back. Okay? They need Christ. They need the gospel. 
The best society is the one where the individual members of it love Jesus and they obey his word. Amen. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. If you take anything away today, I hope that part of it is that it's not about who we vote for, but it's what. And whenever we vote, it's about aligning ourselves what God loves most and the purpose for which he's designed government and called it into existence. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I have never addressed an issue to be controversial. I don't care to be controversial. I just want to represent you well and teach your word. And Lord, I trust that you put people on thrones and then you humble them whenever you choose. But I also know from history, Lord, that you use government to your own ends. I know the things that you love. I know the things that you hate. So Lord, I pray that you would give us all strong conviction to align ourselves with your heart and your purposes. Help us to be defenders of righteousness, Lord, and to do our best to hinder evil in this world for your glory, Lord, and for the sake of our children. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.